Section 31. Organization. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. The high reputation which the general gained as an organizer seems to make it desirable to explain as fully as we can what he aimed at and by what means he made the army the remarkable combination it has become. We have happily in several of our books his own dissertations on the subject, for he always sought to make clear to all who should follow him, especially in this respect, the reasons for his plans. In his introduction to Orders and Regulations for Staff Officers, he writes as follows. Some of the converts resided in other parts of London, and they soon commenced themselves to hold meetings afterwards, and to win souls in their localities. I was entreated to care for these also. The Christian churches, even when they were willing to receive these converts, were, as a result, generally so much occupied with the maintenance of their own existence, or so lukewarm in coping with the necessities of the poor people, as to be unequal to the task of caring for them. I soon found that the majority of those who joined the churches either relapsed again into open backsliding or became half-hearted professors. I was, therefore, driven to select men and women who I knew to be lovers of souls and to be living holy lives for the purpose of caring for these new converts. These helpers I afterwards directed to hold meetings in the streets and in cottages and then in halls and other meeting places. The Lord was with them in great power, and hundreds of wicked and godless people were converted and united together in separate societies. These operations were, in course of time, extended to the provinces where my late beloved wife, who was my unfailing helper and companion in this work until God took her from me, preached with much acceptance and remarkable results. It soon became difficult and at length impossible for me to express my wishes and give my instructions to my helpers by word of mouth, and consequently I had to issue them in the form of correspondence. This I also soon found to be a task beyond my ability. And yet, if unity and harmony were to be preserved among the people God had given me, and if the work were to be carried on successfully, it was evident that they must know my wishes. I was, therefore, compelled to print such directions and rules as I deemed to be necessary. This practice has continued to the present day, and been increased by reason of the advance of the work to an extent I never could have anticipated. Some seventeen years ago I issued a volume of orders and regulations for field officers, more than once since then, this book has been enlarged and revised to date, and, although some further developments have been made since that time, that volume may be taken as the expression, in general terms, of my present convictions of what a field officer of the Salvation Army should be and do, and, as such, I commend it to the attention of officers and soldiers of every rank in the Army throughout the world. Soon after the publication of the Orders and Regulations for Field Officers, a volume describing the duties of divisional officers was issued. 
This volume has also been outgrown by reason of continued developments in the organization of the Army rendering further enlargements necessary. Meanwhile, the ablest and most devoted officers throughout the world have been contriving, and with the authority of headquarters, executing what have seemed the wisest and best methods for attaining the objects we have in view. It now appears to me not only desirable, but absolutely necessary, that these usages should be again examined and classified, and if found to be in harmony with our principles, corrected, reduced to writing, and then, endorsed by my authority, published for the benefit of the army throughout the world and for the advantage also of those who will hereafter be our successors in the responsibility for carrying forward the war. The orders and regulations contained in this volume are the result. It was my intention to make this book a complete compendium of regulations for staff officers of all departments in all parts of the world but it became evident that owing to the multiplication of the different branches of our operations and the diversity of the regulations required by their varied character and conditions, such a volume would have been swollen to most inconvenient dimensions, and I therefore determined to omit everything not applying to the officers under the command of the British Commissioner." It must not be inferred from this that the staff officers employed at international headquarters, or of those engaged in the social work, do not rank equally with those whose duties are herein described. Further orders and regulations required by them, and for staff officers in other territories, will be issued from time to time as needed. The regulations contained in Part 1 of this volume are to be carried out as far as possible in all territories and departments. The regulations herein contained must not be regarded as a final authority on the duties and responsibilities to which they refer. Development has been the order of the Army from the beginning, and will, I hope, remain so to the end. Our methods must of necessity be always changing with the ever-varying character and circumstances of the people whom we seek to benefit, but our principles remain as unchangeable as the throne of Jehovah. It is probable that in succeeding years other orders and regulations will be issued by the central authority to take the place of these I am now publishing. It is right and safe and necessary that it should be so. God will, I believe, continue to make known from time to time to those who follow his good pleasure the way in which the war should be carried on. And the army will, I hope, continue to receive and record in orders and regulations that manifested will and by obedience continue to go forward from victory unto victory. I think I may truthfully say that in no words which it has been my privilege to write in the past, and in no work that it has ever been my lot to undertake, have I been more conscious of the presence and guidance of another spirit than in the preparation of these regulations. That spirit has been, I believe, the spirit of eternal light. I have asked wisdom of God and I verily believe that my request has been favorably regarded. Of this, I think, these regulations will, to those for whom they have been prepared, bear witness. 
These regulations are not, I repeat, intended as a finality. If any staff officer into whose hand this book may come, or may be brought into knowledge of the working of the regulations contained in it, can suggest any improvement, let him do so. If he can show any plan by which the end aimed at can be more simply or inexpensively or effectually gained, either as regards work or men or methods or money, by all means let him make the discovery known to us. God is in no wise confined to any particular person for the revelation of his will. It would be the vainest of vain desires, were I so foolish as to wish that it should be so. Let him speak by whom he will. What I want is to see the work done, souls saved, and the world made to submit at the Savior's feet. I cannot conclude without saying that there has been present with me, all the way through the preparation of this book, a vivid sense of the utter powerlessness of all system, however wisely it may have been framed, which has not in the application of it that spirit of life who alone imparts the vital force without which no extensive or permanent good can be effected. And now, on the completion of my task and at the moment of placing it in the hands of my officers, this conviction is forced upon me in an increasing, I may almost say, a painful degree. No one can deny that the religious world is full of forms which have little or no practical influence on the minds or hearts or lives of those who travel the weary round of their performance day by day. Are the regulations that I am now issuing at no distant date going to swell the number of these dead and powerless systems? God forbid that it should be so. Nothing could be further from my contemplation than such a result. However, there must be regulations. They are necessary. If work is to be done at all, it must be done after some particular fashion. And if one fashion is better than another which no one amongst us will question. It must be the wisest course to discover that best fashion and to describe it in plain language so that it may be acted upon throughout our borders until some better method is made known. We want certain things done in the army for the salvation of souls, for the deliverance of the world from sin and misery, and for the glory of our God and the regulations herein set forth represent the best methods at present known either to me or to those around me for the accomplishment of these things. Therefore, praying for God's blessing upon them, I send them forth in the expectation that the staff officers whom they concern will render a faithful, conscientious, and believing obedience to all that they enjoin. All this was only written in 1904, and there has been nothing since materially to change the system set forth in the 350-odd pages which follow, and which explain as fully as was necessary how the plans which are so fully explained in the volume of Orders and Regulations for Field Officers, above referred to, were to be carried into effect throughout the whole country. The opening chapter of these regulations explains the organization as follows. 
the general divisions of the army. The divisions of the army in the field are at present as follows. Ward, under the charge of a sergeant. Corps, under the charge and command of a field officer. Section, under the charge and command of a sectional officer. Division, under the charge and command of a divisional commander. Province, under the charge and command of a provincial commander. Territory, under the charge and command of a territorial commissioner. A ward is a place of a town or neighborhood in which a corps is operating, placed under the charge of local officers, whose duty it is to watch over the welfare of the soldiers and recruits belonging to it. A corps is that portion of a country in which a separate work is carried on, and for which it is responsible. It may consist of a city, a town, or a particular district of either, and it may include one or more societies in adjoining places, or it may consist of a number of such societies grouped together, in which case it is called a circle corps. A section is a group of corps placed under the command of one or more officers. A division consists of a number of corps grouped together with that part of a country in which these corps are situated. A province comprises a number of divisions. A territory consists of a country, or part of a country, or several countries combined together, as the general may decide. In orders and regulations for his territorial commissioners, that is, those who hold the highest command over whole countries, he writes, The higher the authority with which officers are entrusted, and the larger the responsibilities resting upon them, the greater is the need for that absolute devotion to the principles of the army, and that complete abandonment to the purposes of God which our orders and regulations express and represent, and without which no system, however perfect, and no body of men, however capable, can achieve the great work he has called us to do in establishing the kingdom of God in the earth. One of the greatest problems connected with all organizations is the keeping up to the ideal of those who are in danger of forgetting it, and therefore the following section will, we think, be found especially interesting to those who may ask, how has it been done? Or how is it to be done? It is the section on the development of field officers, and reads as follows. The divisional officer is responsible for seeking to develop the spiritual life of the FOs. No matter what gifts or zeal the officer may possess, if he is not walking in the light and living in the favor of God, it is vain to hope that he will be really successful. The D.O. must always, therefore, when he comes in contact with officers under his command, make inquiries with regard to their spiritual life, leading them to acknowledge their faults and heart conflicts, so that he may give suitable counsel and help. The D.O. must regard himself as responsible to God for maintaining the devotion of the officers under him to the great purpose to which they have already consecrated their lives. He cannot expect to deal faithfully with an officer on such matters unless he does so, and he must bear in mind how easy it is to draw back from that wholehearted sacrifice 
without which no officer can succeed. The D.O. must see that his officers possess and live in the spirit of the army. Without it, their officership will be like a body without a soul, or like a locomotive without any power. The D.O. must encourage officers to cry out to God for this, and must continually explain its importance. The D.O. must understand that if officers under his command decline in their love for souls, and become careless about the progress of their work, he will have failed in a very important part of his duty. The D.O. exists for the purpose of helping and saving his F.O.s. The D.O. is responsible for the development of energy and enterprise in his officers. One great temptation of F.O.s is to settle down and to be content with a formal discharge of duty, and, what is worse still, to offer all sorts of excuses for their lackadaisical laodicea and condition. Few people have in themselves sufficient force of character, human or divine, to keep them pushing ahead for any considerable length of time. Officers who, when they first enter the field, are like flames of fire, will, if not looked after, get into ruts and content themselves with holding so many meetings, doing so many marches, raising the ordinary core funds, meeting the ordinary expenditure, keeping the ordinary number of soldiers on the roll, and doing everything in the ordinary day, while the world, undisturbed, is going forward at express speed to hell. The D.O. should endeavor to prevent this settling down on the part of his officers by continually stirring up their minds with inducements to labor and encouragements to renewed activity and increased sacrifice for the salvation of the world. The D.O. is also responsible for the improvement of the gifts of his officers and of their efficiency for the work they have in hand. He must not only show them wherein they fail, but must teach them how they may do better. The D.O. must encourage his officers. If they have gifts and capacities, and none are without some, he should cheer them forward by acknowledging them. He should point out where they do well, at the same time setting before them the higher positions of usefulness they may reach with a little application and perseverance. He may always remind them of officers who, during the early part of their career, have had little success, but who, by sticking to the fight, have reached positions of great usefulness. There are few officers who, during their early days, are not cast down and tempted to think that they do not possess the gifts necessary to success, and that they have missed their vocation in becoming officers. This class of melancholy feelings should be battled with by the D.O. with all his might, for, if allowed to run their course, the result will be not only depression, but despair and perhaps desertion. The D.O. should give particular attention to the development of the ability, energy, and religion of the lieutenants in his division. Their position in a corps often makes it difficult for them to exercise their gifts to advantage, and they are often depressed and discouraged. A D.O. should always inquire on his visiting a corps having a lieutenant 
whether he is happy with his CO and in the work, what special work he has to do and for which he is actually responsible. Every division must have its own officers' meeting, which should always be conducted by the divisional officer, unless the provincial commander or some officer representing headquarters be present. Every officer in the division must be present at, at least, one officer's meeting in each month. And where it is possible in great centers, meetings should be held once a week. The D.O. must be careful that the officers' meetings do not involve a financial burden on the officers, and he must make such plans as will avoid this and submit the same to the P.C., it will sometimes be found convenient to pool the traveling expenses, but this may easily work unfavorably to the smaller corps instead of in their favor, and in such cases the D.O. must assist his F.O.s with part of the traveling expenses incurred in attending officers' meetings in all such cases where F.O.s are drawing the standard salary or less for their support. Should his funds be insufficient to meet the whole of the burden in such cases, he must apply to the PC for assistance. The officers' meetings should always be held in a comfortable room of a size proportionate to the number of officers present. The officers should be seated directly before the leader. Only field officers shall be admitted. A DO who wishes to meet his local officers with his FO may announce a special meeting for that purpose at any time. There shall always be at the beginning of a meeting some considerable time spent in prayer for the officers present and the division in general, the Universal Army, its officers and soldiers, and especially for any portion of it that may be suffering persecution or passing through trial, for wisdom for those upon whom the direction of the army lies, the supply of money and all else needed to carry on the war the mightier baptisms of the Holy Ghost and the salvation of a large number of souls. The D.O. or any other officer present shall have the opportunity, if desired, of pouring out his soul in loving exhortation to his comrades, but nothing in the nature of discussion or the expression of opinions on any orders that may be given must be permitted. The officer, being most used of God at the time, should be asked to urge his fellows to more holy living, greater self-denial, and increased activity. There shall be the opportunity for the publication of any great blessing that may have been obtained or any remarkable work of grace that may have been realized in the souls of the officers present or in their corps or for the description of any other wonderful work of God that may have been wrought during the week in the division. When at all possible, every officer present should pray aloud during the meeting. There should occasionally be a time set apart for the confession of unfaithfulness and for the open reconsecration to God and the war on the part of any officer. There should be a general rededication of all present to the war at every meeting. There must be a time set apart for the statement by the D.O. of any event of general interest to the whole army, or of any remarkable occurrence in the division, or any meetings, demonstrations, or other services of importance that may be likely soon to take place in the division or elsewhere. 
there must be an opportunity after the meeting to transact business. It is of the greatest importance that there should always be time allowed for personal intercourse between the D.O. and officers present. The D.O. should always announce at the commencement of the meeting that he will be glad to see any officer present personally at its close. It will seem what an enormous power the D.O. possesses in this meeting for inspiring, directing, and controlling all the forces of his division, how every week he can spend the greater part of a day, and as much more time as he likes, in making his officers, who have the leadership of the army in that neighborhood, think and feel exactly as he does. How solemnly important, then, it must be that the D.O. should think and feel, just as our Lord Jesus Christ would have him think and feel on such an occasion, and in the presence of such an opportunity. It is most important that the D.O. should arrange beforehand, with great care, such business as will have to be transacted. For instance, he should have, among other things, a list of the matters requiring attention. He will save himself much trouble in correspondence, much loss of time, and much expense in traveling by seeing the officers about matters that concern their corps and themselves personally at the meeting. If he have no such list, it is probable he will forget some of the most important questions of business he has on hand. He should have a list of the officers he wants to see, together with the business upon which it is necessary that he should confer with them. Notes must always be taken by him of the results of these interviews according to rule, especially should any engagements the D.O. makes for himself be carefully recorded. The D.O. should make some personal spiritual preparation for the meeting. There must, of necessity, be many things of a perplexing and trying character in connection with the officers whom he will have to meet, and the condition of the corps concerning which he will have information. He ought, therefore, to make an opportunity beforehand for special prayer for divine guidance and strength, and so entering the meeting with his mind calm and confident in the assurance not only of the divine favor in his own soul, but that God will sustain and direct him in the meeting and in all the business that may subsequently come before him. The condition of heart and spirit in the D.O. at such times will be instinctively felt by every officer in the room before the meeting has been going on for a quarter of an hour, and this will have far more influence, as has been remarked before, on his command than anything he may say or do. How important is it, then, that he should be as Saul among the prophets, not only head and shoulders above everyone present as regards authority, but in the possession of the wisdom and power of the Holy Ghost. End of section 31 Recording by Tom Hirsch.